Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Israel retrieves the bodies of three dead hostages. This as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan discusses plans to bring home Americans currently in Hamas's captivity. As the House breaks for the holidays, senators are working overtime. Negotiators race to include border security measures and to further aid for Israel and Ukraine. Mexican cartels are terrorizing people on the other side of the southern border. The increasing violence is now causing more families to make their way north to the U.S. Affirmative action returns to court. The same group that convinced the Supreme Court it's unconstitutional over the summer now experiences a setback. The European Union is now officially set to start membership talks with Ukraine. But a major aid package failed to pass. Find out who blocked it. A surprise discovery after six full years. A British boy who vanished in Spain has now been found, but neither in Spain nor the UK. We'll bring you the details and what police are saying. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is in Israel to reaffirm U.S. support. He's meeting with top officials pushing to move to war into its next phase. The U.S. wants more intelligence-based raids and precise targeting of Hamas leadership. We are now in the middle of a high-intensity phase with ongoing ground operations, military operations, in both the northern half and the southern half of Gaza. But um, there will be a transition to another phase of this war, one that is focused uh, in more precise ways on targeting the leadership. And Sullivan today also met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog in Tel Aviv. The two discussed efforts to secure the release of the hostages held in Gaza. They also talked about the war against Hamas. Washington has been telling Israel to do what it can to reduce civilian casualties. That's as global outcry for Palestinians has intensified. Also today, two suspected Hamas members arrived at a federal court in Germany. German authorities transported them using a helicopter. They're accused of planning attacks on Jewish institutions in Europe. Authorities arrested three men in Germany yesterday. Prosecutors allege they were tasked with finding a previously set up underground Hamas weapons cache in Europe. The weapons were allegedly due to be taken to Berlin. There, they'd be kept in a state of readiness for potential terrorist attacks. Another suspected Hamas operative was arrested in the Dutch city of Rotterdam. And also yesterday, three alleged terrorists were arrested in Denmark in a separate case. Israel today confirms it retrieved the bodies of three hostages from Hamas captivity. Two of them were 19-year-old members of the Israeli Defense Forces. The third one was a 28-year-old festival-goer who Hamas abducted on October 7th. This brings the total hostages murdered by Hamas to eight. The U.S. Senate is delaying its holiday break, hoping to vote for a Ukraine-Israel aid package next week. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says negotiations aim to reach a framework deal over the weekend. Schumer says the Senate will reconvene Monday for a vote no matter what. The House recessed for the holiday break yesterday with no sign of returning before January. GOP senators insist border security policy changes are tied to any more aid for Ukraine. 
NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the negotiations. White House and Senate negotiators are racing to wrap up a border security compromise on stalled aid for Ukraine before the year's end. The Senate plans to reconvene Monday in hopes of passing President Biden's $110 billion aid request. Negotiators are working on a deal with new restrictions on asylum claims that would allow Homeland Security officials to stop applications if total crossings exceed a certain threshold. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Thursday negotiations were making good progress. If we believe something is important and urgent, we should stay and get the job done. Biden is urging Congress to pass the measure that would provide $50 billion in new security to Ukraine as it fights Russia and $14 billion for Israel. House Speaker Mike Johnson and Senate Republicans have repeatedly said they'll only vote for more Ukraine aid if it's paired with new controls for the U.S.-Mexico border. Negotiator Senator Kirsten Sinema says she can now see the deal after a period of feeling it had stalled. The fact that the White House is fully engaged in the negotiations has definitely made a difference. It's communicated to Senate Republicans that this is serious and that we've got a deal in the future. So that's been really helpful. Cinema, without discussing details, says her aim is to craft the Senate bill that can pass with majorities of both parties by making sure it has both the policy and funding to create what she called an orderly, safe, secure and humane process for seeking asylum or immigrating for other legal reasons. Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio warned there would be what he called a revolt by Republicans if they're forced into a quick vote. GOP Senator Tom Cotton says he thinks negotiators are still very far apart on the border crisis and have not addressed the GOP demand to limit Biden's so-called parole authority used to allow hundreds of thousands of migrants to enter the U.S. legally. Some Democrats are concerned leaving the funding deadlock in limbo for weeks will lead to the deal's collapse. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Talk of censorship still swirling. 2020 saw the removal of social media posts and accounts related to COVID vaccines and other issues. We now know the federal government was behind some of this silencing. Mark Chenoweth, president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, recently testified before Congress on this. He joins us live now to discuss where the nation now stands on social media censorship and free speech. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. To start with, take us back to the pandemic. What were some of the vaccine-related posts targeted for censorship? The posts that were targeted for censorship uh, that, that our clients had posted, these were epidemiologists, world-renowned epidemiologists at Harvard and Stanford, uh, who were saying that uh, natural immunity existed uh, to the COVID-19 uh, uh, disease, meaning that if you had already contracted it, then you might not need to get uh, the vaccine. Uh, you could show that you had antibodies to it, for example. They were also saying things like the vaccine is not going to stop transmission of the virus, which the government at one point was claiming uh, that it would. And we now know that it did not and that that was a false piece of information that was being uh, propagated. So information like that. And what happened to these people, these posts? So in many cases, the posts were uh, the the readership for those posts was decreased when the government flagged the posts for the social media companies and encouraged the social media companies uh, to either take them down or reduce their visibility. The social media companies complied with that and, and uh, in some cases also flagged the accounts of these individuals uh, in order to uh, make sure that they kept an eye on future posts that they might uh, put up. And how did the government, the government justify these actions in light of the freedom of speech in America? Uh, the government uh, in the COVID case in particular says that it was concerned about vaccine hesitancy. Uh, they also claimed that they were trying to suppress disinformation. But in fact, 
the information that these individuals was uh, that our clients was sharing was information that was actually true and scientifically accurate. It was the government, in fact, under Anthony Fauci and others who was spreading disinformation about both the virus and the vaccines. And the reason we need free speech in this country, the reason we have a First Amendment is because the government is not the arbiter of truth and we can't trust the government to decide what's true and false. We saw during COVID-19 that oftentimes what the government was saying was not proved not to be uh, factual. What do we know about why they were doing this in the first place? Well, there are mixed motives. Like I say, vaccine hesitancy was was part of it. But if you look at something like the origin of the virus, uh, there were people who were truthfully saying that it looked like uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the origin of the virus. And that kind of speech was being uh, shut down as well. Why was that being shut down? Well, someone may have not wanted uh, to, that fact to come out. Maybe it's for foreign policy reasons. Maybe it's because uh, someone in the administration like an Anthony Fauci had supported funding for that institute and didn't want that to come back on them. Uh, you know, if you're if you're looking at, at other kinds of, of things like the lockdowns, some of the some of the speech that was shut down was speech that was opposing the lockdowns. And you had government at the local, state and federal levels who didn't want their lockdown decisions to be called into question. All right, and Mark, what's been the response to all of this? So the response uh, by the by the courts, frankly, has been uh, mixed on the censorship front. In the particular case that's in front of the Supreme Court right now, we had success in both the Western District of Louisiana and then at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which recognized, and this is the Murphy v. Missouri case that's now pending at the Supreme Court, they recognized that there were, in fact, several agencies that had done enough in pushing and pressuring and, uh, and integrating with these social media companies uh, that the government could be held responsible for violating the First Amendment with respect to our clients and with respect to uh, the state of Missouri and the state of Louisiana. Just in closing here, Mark, what do you think needs to happen next to protect freedom of speech in America? Well, I think Congress needs to take a close look at these agencies. And uh, let me make clear, Congress has not approved any of this a censorship that's been taking place by these federal agencies. This is the administrative state run amok doing this kind of censorship on its own. And Congress needs to defund or find other ways of reining in these agencies to ensure that they don't engage in this kind of unconstitutional conduct uh, in the future. The courts, for their part, they need to recognize that when there is strong evidence that this kind of First Amendment violative uh, actions have taken place by the government, they need to uphold the injunctions uh, that NCLA and others are seeking against these government agencies, again, to, to prevent them from violating Americans' free speech rights. Okay, Mark Chenoweth, president of the New Civil Liberties Alliance, thank you so much. Thank you. We're heading now to Lukeville, Arizona, where our Customs and Border Patrol agents are encountering increased illegal immigration. The remote area has become a hotspot for smugglers who steer migrants into the remote Arizona desert. The influx has left authorities shorthanded and poses new challenges for Border Patrol. U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced earlier this month that the Lukeville port of entry would be closed. Personnel were redirected to assist the Border Patrol with taking illegal immigrants into custody. The U.S. Embassy in Mexico says there have been increased levels of migrant encounters at the south southwest border. It says the crossings were fueled by traffickers peddling disinformation to prey on vulnerable individuals. And illegal immigration at our southern border keeps rising. 
Critics say it's partly due to lax enforcement of immigration laws and so-called open border policies. Another potential reason for the increase is a rise in cartel violence in Mexico. Some Mexicans explain they're leaving their homes over safety reasons, saying the cartels have become too powerful. The ones who speak out are often too afraid to show their faces on camera. Their power is massive. So where can you go in Mexico that doesn't have this cartel? Where can you be safe? Fear prevails. The Jalisco New Generation Cartel and the Sinaloa Cartel are currently the two most powerful in Mexico, often causing violence and death. Over the 12 months ending in October, around 180,000 Mexican immigrants traveled to the U.S. in family groups. That's four times more than the previous year. In total, Mexicans make up a fifth of all immigrants traveling in family groups. Coming up, how much will Rudy Giuliani have to pay in damages? Jury deliberation resumes in his defamation trial. And beginning next month, you can't buy an AR-15 in Illinois. The Supreme Court just made a decision on this sweeping firearms ban. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Shen Yun Creations, the streaming platform from Shen Yun, featuring world-class dance, past programs, and all original music. Masterclasses, behind the scenes, comedy, and more. Explore ShenYunCreations.com. Anyone who's ever sold a home will tell you it's really hard. And it's one of the biggest financial decisions you'll ever make. That's why who you work with matters. Together with Homelite, we take care of every detail. Adopting you was the best decision in our life. And I am so proud to call you my son. What if you could whiten your teeth by simply brushing your teeth? Now you can with Smile Actives, the teeth whitening breakthrough that safely gets your teeth white and keeps them white every day just by brushing your teeth. I never thought that whitening my teeth could be so easy. I just put the gel on the brush, the toothpaste on it, brush, and I can see my white teeth. Simply add Smile Actives to any toothpaste and our patented PolyClean technology activates into a powerful microfoam that penetrates into the enamel surface to safely lift and remove stains. You need a simple way to whiten your teeth without strips, without trays, without going to the dentist. And it was about time that a product was developed that you would be able to do that with just brushing. And now Smile Actives is even better with new Pro Whitening Gel with 33% greater whitening power, clinically shown to whiten teeth faster, up to eight shades. 100% of users saw whiter teeth. 
on food stains, coffee and wine stains, even on veneers, crowns, and dentures. I eat the blueberries, I drink the coffee, and I know that Smile Actives will keep my teeth white every day. If you could use something so easy like Smile Actives to take yellow teeth to white teeth, why wouldn't you? Why spend hundreds of dollars for whitening treatments at the dentist when now you can whiten your teeth with new Smile Actives Pro Whitening Gel every time you brush your teeth. Call or go to smileactives.com and for a limited time, get new Pro Whitening Gel for just $24.95. Order in the next five minutes and buy one, get one absolutely free for just $24.95. That's two for one and save 58%. We'll even include free shipping. Get your teeth whiter guaranteed or return it within 60 days for your money back. I smile every day now. <laughs> The difference is literally night and day. So now I'm always smiling, always choosing, because now my teeth are much whiter. This offer is not available in stores, so call or click now before the special buy one, get one free offer goes away. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani's defamation trial continues to unfold in Washington, D.C. The jury is resuming its deliberations. Giuliani arrived at the courthouse earlier this morning, but he has said he will not testify in the trial. The case stems from Giuliani's claim that two election workers in Georgia helped rig the 2020 election against Trump. The two election workers sued Giuliani for defamation. They're seeking $24 million in damages from him. The judge has already decided that Giuliani is liable for defamation. The jury only needs to decide how much he has to pay. And in Illinois, a sweeping restriction on common firearms is going to stay in place. The Supreme Court on Thursday denied an emergency request to halt the ban. The decision leaves in place a law called the Protect Illinois Communities Act. It makes it illegal for the general public to own semi-automatic rifles like the AR-15 and magazines holding more than 10 rounds. The Illinois governor signed it into law in January. It's one of the country's toughest restrictions on gun rights, and it's set to take effect in January 2024. The National Association for Gun Rights, along with a gun store owner, filed the emergency request to the High Court in November. No justices dissented from the decision. The National Association for Gun Rights says they will keep fighting. And the city of New York plunged into darkness late last night due to a fault in a Con Edison transmission line. The incident caused lights to flicker on and off across the five boroughs, Long Island and even in New Jersey. Witnesses reported an explosion and smoke at a substation near the Brooklyn waterfront. Officials say the equipment quickly recovered. The outage triggered fire alarms and left people trapped in elevators across the city. Fortunately, there were no major safety issues and all power has now been restored. Con Edison is conducting further investigations to determine the exact cause of the outage. Regulators are making it easier for candidates seeking federal office to pay themselves a salary while campaigning. A new rule approved by the Federal Election Commission reforms how they can use campaign funds. Right now, the salaries they can give themselves are tied to their earnings from the previous year. This discourages people with low salaries from running for office. The new regulation allows them to pay themselves up to 50% of the annual U.S. House salary, or $87,000 per year. They will also be able to start drawing a paycheck when they file their statement of candidacy with the FEC. Right now, they have to wait until the filing deadlines in, in their states, which are very widely. The new regulation goes into effect next year. 
The U.S. Naval Academy can consider race for applicants, a federal judge ruled yesterday. It's a blow to the same group that successfully challenged affirmative action before the Supreme Court. The judge, a George W. Bush appointee, acknowledged that the Supreme Court ruled affirmative action is unconstitutional in June. He added that their decision did exempt military academies. A lawyer for students for fair admissions indicated the group may appeal. The group is also suing the U.S. Military Academy of West Point. A federal judge in New York will hear arguments in that case on December 21st. President Biden's administration has defended the military academy's affirmative action policies. A U.S. Navy officer imprisoned in Japan for more than a year is on his way home. The family of Lieutenant Ridge Alconis says he's being transferred back to the U.S. after serving almost half of his three-year prison sentence. He's expected to serve the rest of it stateside. The move is part of a treaty that requires all three parties, Alconis, the U.S., and Japan, to agree on the transfer. The officer was jailed in Japan for negligent driving that resulted in the death of two people and injured injuries to a third person in 2021. For his defense, he said he suffered from acute mountain sickness, which caused him to lose consciousness. That argument was rejected by the Japanese court. Alconis' family said they are happy he's coming home and are hoping the American justice system will re-examine the case. The family also said they offered the victim's families over $1 million in restitution, which is the customary amount in Japan. The adult son of Senator Kevin Kramer faces new charges for a car crash that killed a North Dakota sheriff's deputy. Ian Kramer initially faced a manslaughter charge for the deputy's death. Mercer County Sheriff's Deputy Paul Martin was killed on the highway on December 6th. Kramer hit speeds of 100 miles per hour and kept going even after a spiked device flattened two tires. He then swerved and crashed head-on into Martin's squad car. A judge on Thursday approved upgrading the charge to homicide while fleeing a peace officer. Drug charges included possession of meth, cocaine, marijuana and drug paraphernalia. The, hom the homicide charge carries a longer sentence than a manslaughter. Kramer now faces up to 20 years in prison and a possible $20,000 fine. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt is going after diversity, equity and inclusion positions and programs in the state. Stitt calls DEI a waste of taxpayer money. The governor issued the executive order Wednesday. Public universities will be required to review and dissolve DEI positions and programs. All state agencies and institutions of higher education will have to report the cost of their programs. They'll also be required to cease funding any measure favoring a particular race, sex or ethnicity over another. Public educational institutions will be prohibited from using state funds, property or resources for DEI purposes. DEI-themed education or training also can't be mandated for employees. The order will not affect services that support veterans, low-income students, or students with unique abilities. Georgia authorities are asking for the public's help in catching arsonists. A $200,000 reward is being offered for information leading to those responsible for setting fires to, pro to protest a police training center. Protesters have called the proposed Atlanta Public Safety Training Center Cop City. Atlanta police say more than 21 fires in four states have been set by a, quote, very small group. They say construction equipment, an Atlanta police precinct, and a youth center have all been recent targets of the group. 
Fortunately, no one has died from the fires, but police say the cost of the damage is more than $10 million. Several people have been arrested in connection to the crimes, but authorities are looking for more. The Gwinnett Fire Department says a November fire at a concrete company there destroyed 14 construction vehicles. And the group who claimed responsibility encouraged further acts of arson to support their efforts. The Food and Drug Administration has confiscated more than $18 million worth of unauthorized e-cigarettes. The seizure was part of a joint operation with the Customs and Border Protection and was conducted at a cargo examination site at LAX. According to the FDA, all of the 1.4 million confiscated units originated from China. They included commonly used brands such as Elf Bar and Funky Republic. The FDA says the items were intentionally mislabeled as toys or shoes and were also listed with incorrect values. The agency says the seized products will be destroyed. And three major retailers are suspending sales of water bead products marketed to young children. The announcement comes amid growing safety concerns. When the surgeon came out from the OR, he showed my husband and I a picture. And he said, this is what I pulled from your daughter's small intestine. Do you know what this is? And Jonathan and I recognized it immediately as the water bead material. Amazon, Walmart, and Target will stop selling the colorful balls made of super absorbent polymers. They're often sold as toys, craft activity kits, and sensory tools for children with developmental disabilities. But swallowing them can pose serious health risks. An estimated 7,800 water bead-related injuries were treated in emergency rooms between 2016 and 2022. Last month, House lawmakers proposed banning all water beads marketed to kids nationwide. Coming up, European Union is now officially set to start membership talks with Ukraine. However, the Prime Minister of one member country says he might halt the process in the future. And besides Ukraine, another country, Georgia, is also striving for EU membership. How far is it from that goal? We'll have the details soon when we return. Over 500 people were injured when two subway trains collided in Beijing last night. The Chinese capital is under unusually heavy snow, adding danger to the above-ground portion of the subway system. In total, 515 people were sent to the hospital, including about 100 with broken bones. As of this morning, 25 passengers were under observation and nearly 70 remained hospitalized. Authorities said the tracks were slippery. One of the trains, which was going downhill, went into a skid and was unable to break in time. Unusually heavy snow began falling in Beijing this Wednesday. It has prompted authorities to suspend some trains and close some schools. Now we're going to switch gears for some headlines from Europe. First up, a shocking story about a grenade explosion in western Ukraine. And a warning, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing. A local deputy detonated several grenades today at a village council meeting. Police say 26 people were injured, six of them seriously. The National Police of Ukraine published a video of the incident on Telegram. Footage shows the deputy entering the room, taking grenades out of his pockets and throwing them on the floor. 
Video captured the moment of explosion and panic at the council session. Initially, police said the deputy had died. Later statement added that doctors were attempting to resuscitate him. It's not clear exactly how many grenades were detonated. The deputy's motives remain unclear as well. The European Union is now officially agreeing to start membership talks with Ukraine. EU member nations took the historic step at a summit that it continues today. Potential membership is likely still many years away, but the decision takes Ukraine a step closer to anchoring itself in the West and liberating itself from Russia's orbit. Also today, the EU didn't manage to pass a $55 billion aid package for Ukraine. That's due to a veto by Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. European leaders say they're still optimistic they'll pass the aid package. A lot of progress has been uh, has been made. We see what what the framework could be of an agreement, but it looks like we need a few weeks to uh, to get there. But there as well, the message to Ukraine is, we will be there to support you. Of course, this is only the first page uh, of 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 very long long process. But in order to go further, you need to open the first page. Yes, if you are reading the book. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is celebrating the bloc's decision to start membership talks. He says it will be a big job to adapt the state and all of its institutions to European Union norms, but says Ukraine will be able to do so. That's exactly how it works. This is a truly remarkable result for Ukraine and for the whole of Europe. Another step towards Ukraine's full membership in the EU. I'm grateful to everyone who supported us and fulfilled exactly what we had agreed upon. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban today standing by his decision to veto the financial aid package for Ukraine. He told state radio that he had to block the aid package to ensure Hungary receives the funds it wants from the EU budget. Orban says Ukraine shouldn't receive large funds from the EU because it's not part of the bloc. However, others argue the prime minister is generally anti-Ukraine and pro-Russia. That might be due to Hungary's dependence on Russian energy supplies. In terms of the approved membership talks, Orban says that he can still halt them. Hungary bears no responsibility for this. We can halt this process later on. And if needed, we will pull the brakes. And the ultimate decision will be made by Hungarian parliament. A surprising discovery in France this week, a British teenager who went missing in Spain six years ago has now been found in southwestern France. The boy disappeared at age 11 during a holiday to Spain with his mother and grandmother in 2017. Both are still wanted in connection with his disappearance. His grandfather there actually and a delivery driver spotted the teenager wandering along a highway. That's after reportedly having fled a spiritualist community in the mountains. British police today said they're working with the French authorities to bring the teenager back to Britain. The jets are of particular importance to Ukraine as new aid from Europe is still up in the air, even while the country is a step closer to joining the European Union. While Ukraine's hopes are in the spotlight at the EU summit this week, another country, Georgia, is also seeking progress toward eventual entry into the coveted club. But even with candidate status in sight, actual membership is likely to be a distant dream. Take a look. Surveys show that up to 90% of Georgia's 3.7 million people support EU accession. And the sentiment is hard to hide. Blue and yellow flags are ubiquitous around the capital, Tbilisi. 
For Georgi Popyashvili, a 40-year-old art director, his country's future clearly lies with Europe and not Russia, its effective ruler for 200 years until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, that's probably my dream, to see Georgia uh, as a part of European family. Um, I'm, I've been traveling around the world in my life. I've seen many places and still Europe for me is the probably the best place. I feel better in Europe than in the other world, in the other part of the world. But simple enthusiasm on the streets won't be enough to secure candidate status. While the ruling Georgian Dream Party officially supports EU and NATO membership, its track record on reforms has raised questions over how serious it is. The government's conciliatory stance towards Russia has also irked Brussels. Corneli Kakachia, director of the Georgian Institute of Politics think tank, says the government is fearful of losing power domestically. Yeah, I think um, it was, uh, first of all, geopolitical decision uh, based on the uh, threats and influences uh, uh, of Russia potential on the region. And then, of course, the EU also took uh, into notice the public opinion polls, which is very pro-EU in Georgia. Uh, of course, EU realizes that the Georgian government didn't fulfill all these 12 recommendations, but um, understanding this geopolitical kind of momentum which is there, uh, EU decided to give Georgia this candidate status. Sandwiched between Russia and Turkey, Georgia has no land border with the EU. It applied for EU membership in March 2022 alongside Ukraine and Moldova. At the time, the EU said Georgia needed to do more to fight corruption, improve the independence of its judiciary and depolarize its bitterly partisan domestic politics. Although the European Commission officially recommended it for candidate status last month, it made clear that this could be withdrawn if agreed reforms were not delivered. One important sticking point is foreign policy and the government's move to improve ties with Moscow since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Although Moscow and Tbilisi have no formal diplomatic relations, Georgia has declined to impose sanctions on Russia, as the EU and other Western countries have done. Another of the EU's demands is for Georgia to reduce the political influence of wealthy tycoons. But closer ties to Brussels are not everyone's cup of tea. In Gori, in eastern Georgia, this resident is clear in wanting better relations with Russia. And despite EU membership being a no-brainer for many Georgians, becoming the EU's 28th member state is still a distant dream. A new national poll shows Trump leading Biden in seven swing states. That's up from five states last month. NTD's Arlene Richards breaks down the numbers. Should President Biden be worried 11 months before Election Day? According to recent polls, he should. A morning consult and Bloomberg News poll shows Biden trailing in seven battleground states. That's two more than a New York Times-Siena College poll showed last month. The latest results published Thursday include a survey of nearly 5,000 swing state voters from November 27 to December 6. Key states surveyed include Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Trump leads in all seven states by an average margin of 5.3 points. The former president is leading in Wisconsin by four points, knocking out Biden's two-point lead a month ago. Biden performs worse against Trump in North Carolina and Georgia.
At a town hall Wednesday in Iowa, Trump took aim at Biden. Families all across America are struggling under the brutal weight of Bidenomics. You know, Bidenomics means a lot of bad things. Trump pointed to high prices and inflation as a symptom of Bidenomics. He also questioned Biden's mental fitness. It's just incredible that he can frankly be even running anything. A guy can't, he can't put two sentences together. As for the GOP primary, a Monmouth County University Washington Post poll shows 63% of likely Republican voters in Michigan would vote for Trump. Haley and DeSantis tied for second place at 13%. Meanwhile, at another Iowa event, Vivek Ramaswamy was on the defense as moderator Abby Phillip challenged his stance on the January 6th Capitol breach. If you had told me that January 6th was in any way an inside job, the subject of government entrapment, I would have told you that was crazy talk. Fringe conspiracy theory nonsense. I can tell you now, having gone somewhat deep in this, it's not. The reality is we know that there were federal law enforcement agents in that field. We don't know how many. Phillip interrupted Ramaswamy to say there is no proof that federal agents were in the crowd. In a social media post, Ramaswamy said, there is clear evidence that there was at the very least entrapment of peaceful protesters. Over in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is capitalizing on an endorsement from Governor Chris Sununu. But she needs a lot more votes to catch up to Trump. On Fox News Thursday, Sununu asked for help. I'm asking everyone to come out. I, if you're a Republican, a conservative, an independent, conservative Democrat, I don't care. Sununu, a Republican, believes Haley has enough broad appeal among conservatives and moderates to take on Trump in the GOP primary. But a recent Real Clear Politics poll shows Trump leading Haley by just over 25 points in New Hampshire, 44.3 to 18.7. Trump is set to visit New Hampshire and Nevada later this week. Arlene Richards, NTD News. You win some, you lose some. Former President Donald Trump triumphed in a Michigan case yesterday while falling short in New York. A Michigan appeals court ruled that Trump will be, will be on the Michigan primary ballot, upholding a lower court decision. The Trump campaign declared victory, saying none of the, quote, bad faith challenges have succeeded in any state, but Trump did not fare as well in New York. An appeals court there rejected his challenge to a gag order. This, a day after testimony ended in a civil fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General, New York Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engeron issued the gag order in October. It prohibits Trump and his attorneys from making statements about the judge's staff. And the Supreme Court says it will hear a case surrounding a section of the Constitution which criminalizes obstruction of an official proceeding. It's used in many January 6 cases in progress right now, including that of the former president, President Trump. With us to break this all down is constitutional law attorney and former Trump attorney, Jared Roberts. Jared, do you anticipate this case could significantly impact the charges against President Trump in his D.C. case? I think that it could. Uh, I mean, it's definitely good to note that it's it's a uh, that the Supreme Court is willing to take this on is something that's good. I mean, we know that the Supreme Court is generally uh, conservative leaning and there's good hope that they will recognize that the charges against President Trump are a sham. Uh, they don't hold any merit. And even beyond President Trump, this type of ruling can impact criminal cases for all J6 defendants. Uh, a lot of them have been charged with these same types of crimes. And so this goes much further than just the president in that it could impact 
the whole thing and show how all of this was a sham. And with, Janu with uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith pushing for immediate Supreme Court action on cl Trump's claim of executive immunity, what implications might that have for both Trump and other January 6th defendants? So with immunity, uh, this will go to whether or not the president was, if you're acting within the scope of your office as the president, you're absolutely immune on anything that you were doing at that time. And when President Trump was speaking to the American people on a matter of public concern, which was the voting regulations, the voting laws that Democrats pushed in overnight without much oversight. And so he was challenging whether or not this, I mean, whether or not the election was actually legit. And he had an absolute right to do that. He had a First Amendment right. And because he was petitioning a public concern on the election, he was absolutely immune because it was in the office his presidency. Now, what potential risks or benefits do you foresee if the court chooses to engage or abstain in addressing Trump-related matters, and especially in regards to the broader January 6th narrative? I mean, if the court does ultimately deny immunity, uh, I think the president's opponents are going to jump on that. They're going to say, oh, see, I was right. We were right. But I think it's important to realize the long game here and that immunity is just one of the defenses that the president has. He also has the right, he has his First Amendment right. I mean, he was, as I've been saying, he was petitioning a public concern at the time that is, that goes to, and it was on political speech, that goes to the heart of the First Amendment. And so there's many avenues that the president has to defeat these claims. And in the long run, I'm, very confident that all of the charges will fall apart. It just comes down to which defense gets us there. Lastly, Jared, how might the outcome of these legal proceedings potentially influence public opinion in regards to Trump's candidacy and potentially faith in the Supreme Court? I think it's important to note that Democrats are terrified of President Trump. They I think you guys were just showing the polling and that the president is polling very well against Joe Biden right now. And if the election were held today, President Trump would win the election. And so what the Democrats are trying to do is they're trying to take the, away this election from the American people. They're trying to put it into the hands of left wing judges. And honestly, it's anti-democratic what the Democrats are doing here. And I think the American people are going to see right through that. The polling is showing that they are seeing right through that. And I think that the more it comes out that these charges and all the lawsuits against the president are a sham, President Trump is only going to increase his strength. Jared Roberts, constitutional law attorney and former Trump attorney, thank you so much. Thank you. And in health news, the change in the seasons is often accompanied by a change in mood. Paying some extra attention to diet, though, can help keep us happy during those darker months. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. The weather is getting cold, so it's a great time of year to practice self-care. Eating a healthy and nourishing diet is central. The Mediterranean diet is full of mood-boosting nutrients. This makes it a good choice for reducing seasonal blues. There are naturally occurring physiological shifts once the daylight hours grow shorter. They can have a direct impact on our moods. 
This can make us reach for comfort foods like pizza or pasta. This is where the Mediterranean diet can be beneficial. The diet is characterized by an abundance of fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, olive oil, fish, legumes, nuts and seeds, and dairy, eggs, and red wine in moderate amounts. The Mediterranean diet offers a vast array of health benefits according to research. This includes protection against cardiovascular disease, stroke, diabetes, and certain types of cancer. It has been shown to promote healthy aging and protect against cognitive decline. Interestingly, it has also shown strong potential to improve mood and help relieve depression. But as you know, depression is not usually caused by a single isolated factor. The same thing for the Mediterranean diet. The diet alone doesn't offer a one-step solution. A healthy lifestyle is also key. The Mediterranean lifestyle typically includes other health-promoting behaviors as well. They are key to enhancing longevity. This includes exercise and slower-paced meals, which nurture strong social connections. Diet is a great place to start though, and when it comes to mood-boosting foods, the Mediterranean diet is hard to beat. What breed of dog is perfect? The answer to that is highly subjective, of course. Forbes advisor asked the question to 10,000 dog owners and found it varies widely depending on where you live. German Shepherds scored number one in most states, in the most states, 16 of them. But for people living in the most populous states of California, Florida, and Texas, Bernese Mountain Dogs took the top spot. Take it all with a grain of salt, though, because the American Kennel Club Foundation found French Bulldogs for the most popular breed in the U.S. last year. But Forbes' survey didn't show Frenchies as ranking in the top three for any state. And for reasons that aren't explained, Havanese came in last place for 33 states. The most popular answer in the survey is probably the most correct, that no breed in particular is best. And in Wisconsin, some kind-hearted firefighters used an inflatable boat to save a stranded deer. The animal was struck, stuck on a frozen portion of the St. Louis River in the city of Superior. The rescuers put on their ice suits and loaded the deer into the inflatable rescue craft. Then they released it into nearby woods unharmed. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. What will the next phase of the Israel-Hamas war look like? See what came out of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's meeting with Israeli and Palestinian authorities. Invest, align, and compete. The U.S. ambassador to China breaks down what this strategy means when it comes to U.S.-China relations. How much will Rudy Giuliani have to pay in damages? Jury deliberation resumes in the former Trump lawyer's defamation trial. A rail collision in Beijing sends hundreds to the hospital. See how it all happened as the Chinese capital is under heavy snow. Shohei Otani is now officially a Dodger, but why he choose them? The $700 million man reveals his reasons, and money isn't at the top of the list. A master craftsman takes us inside his workshop to learn about the art of pleading. Five generations of artistry form a rich tapestry of his family's history and dedication to this dying craft.
This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. The war in Gaza may reach a new phase soon. The U.S. and Israel have discussed a timetable for scaling back intense fighting. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with both Israeli and Palestinian authorities today. During his meeting with Israeli officials, Sullivan discussed a transition from the high-intensity operations to more targeted operations. Israeli Defense Minister said it would take months to destroy Hamas. Sullivan then went to the West Bank to meet with a Palestinian Authority leader. They discussed a potential plan for Gaza once the war is over. The plan could include bringing back Palestinian security forces to Gaza. Elsewhere in the region, Yemen's Houthi rebel, rebels continued to attack ships in the Red Sea. The group said that they struck two cargo ships with ballistic missiles. Coming next week, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair Chairman General Charles Brown will visit Israel. They plan to meet with Israeli officials and further discuss scaling back the fighting. We're heading now to Lukeville, Arizona, where Customs and Border Patrol agents are encountering increased illegal immigration. The remote area has become a hot spot for smugglers who steer immigrants steer migrants into the remote Arizona desert. The influx has left authorities shorthanded and poses new challenges for Border Patrol. U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced earlier this month that the Lukeville port of entry could be closed. Personnel were directed to assist the Border Patrol with talk, taking illegal immigrants into custody. The U.S. Embassy in Mexico says there have been increased levels of migrant encounters at the southwestern border. It says the crossings were fueled by traffickers peddling disinformation to prey on vulnerable individuals. The illegal immigration at our southern border keeps rising. Critics say it's partly due to lax enforcement of immigration laws and so-called open border policies. Another potential reason for the increase is a rise in cartel violence in Mexico. Some Mexicans explain they're leaving their homes over safety reasons, saying the cartels have become too powerful. The ones who speak out are often too afraid to show their faces on camera. Their power is massive. So where can you go in Mexico that doesn't have this cartel? Where can you be safe? Fear prevails. The Jalisco New Generation Cartel and the Sinaloa Cartel are currently the two most powerful in Mexico, often causing violence and death. Over the 12 months ending in October, around 180,000 Mexican immigrants traveled to the U.S. in family groups. That's four times more than the previous year. In total, Mexicans make up a fifth of all immigrants traveling in family groups. And the United States annual defense spending bill passed this week mandates several significant reports and actions. We take a look at what's in the bill with retired U.S. Army Colonel John Mills, who's also a former director of cybersecurity policy at the Department of Defense and the author of the book, The Nation Will Follow. Colonel John Mills, what's the significance of the recently passed $880 billion-plus defense bill, particularly concerning its impact on national security and the military's preparedness? Well, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, so this is the authorization. We'll see exactly how much is in the appropriation, which, um, but some good, some not so good. Uh, a big thing was the uh, uh, NewsGuard and uh, the Global Disinformation Index were taken out. Okay, and that's you know that is State Department uh, that has been running a shadow censorship operation 
using NewsGuard and the London-based Global Disinformation Index. That's good. It also asks for a number of reports on China. It really is a ramp up in spending. But there's also some, some disappointments. It had the 702 um, extension of the warrantless uh, wiretaps. It didn't address oil being sold from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It did get out CCP tutoring. Um, but uh, it also kept in, uh, it did not put in an anti-woke policy. So some good and some bad here. Right, now I wanna hone in on the China aspect of this. As you mentioned, China has mentioned, it's mentioned multiple times in this new spending bill and it mandates a report analyzing potential consequences for a possible US-China war in 2030. To start with, how is the US preparing for that and why 2030? I think that is too far out in the future. I mean, I think it was Admiral Stravitas had written a book about the coming war with China in 2032. So they've advanced it uh, the two years. I think we need to think about it in the next two, uh, in the next couple of years, not 2030, not 2032. This pushes the likelihood way out, and I, I think that's unrealistic. We're still not up to speed on our industrial base. We're still not up to speed on preparations. We need to move faster and faster. And I think we're setting the possibility too far down the road. All right, now this bill it highlights assessments of China's potential actions against US aircraft and infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific. So it's very specific here. What critical measures or advancements do you think the US needs to bolster and counter uh, potential Chinese threats effectively here? Well, I just will refer to the uh, Department of Defense on uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific commander has made multiple statements about his uh, priorities. He's also talked in detail about the Pacific Deterrence Initiative Fund, which is uh, money over and above uh, uh, this. So I, I believe the PDI is over and above. So that's specifically for Indo-Pacific Command to get ready. The classified report in the NDA asked for very, uh, it asked for a classified report on very detailed and specific attributes of key facilities for our side in the first, second, and third island chain and what we are supposed to do about that. So I think the classified report will uh, address a lot of these topics. All right, and lastly, the legislation directs analysis of the CCP's investments in critical infrastructure worldwide. From your experience in cybersecurity policy, what concerns should the U.S. address regarding vulnerabilities in global supply chains and critical infrastructure? Well, we've, we've already referenced and talked about the um, uh, port crane issue. 80% of uh, U.S. Um, container cranes come from ZPMC Corporation, which uh, has its large facility right on the large island uh, in Shanghai, right next to where the, uh, China builds aircraft carriers. We can't trust those port and container cranes. Uh, their observation posts, their internet protocol endpoints. That Since they're an internet protocol endpoint, they can see and hear and understand everything that's going on in that harbor. That's a very bad idea. But anything with a Chinese componentry at this point in time has to be looked at as untrusted. Colonel John Mills, always great to speak with you. Thank you so much. The U.S. Ambassador to China, Nicholas Burns. What's his take on U.S.-China relations? He spoke at the Brookings Institute today on America's current relationship with China and the Biden administration's approach. We are vying for global power as well as regional power. 
I think we're systemic rivals. Uh, if you think about our larger security and economic and political interests around the world. Uh, in our administration, President Biden has set out a very clear policy. It's called invest, align, and compete. Invest refers to investing in U.S. infrastructure. Align refers to building strong ties with Asian allies. And compete refers to competing with China for military and technological power. Burns called the U.S.-China relations the most consequential relationship for the U.S. He said that's because the two countries are the most powerful economic and military powers, both now and for the coming decades. The ambassador also highlighted another major shift, and that is, over the past two years, Europe has begun to think strategically about its relationship with the U.S., Australia, and Asian countries vis-a-vis -vis China. Over 500 people were injured when two subway trains collided in Beijing last night. The Chinese capital is under unusually heavy snow, adding to the above-ground portion of the subway system. In total, 515 people were sent to the hospital, including about 100 with broken bones. As of this morning, 25 passengers were under observation and nearly 70 remained hospitalized. Authorities said the tracks were slippery. One of the trains, which was going downhill, went into a skid and was unable to break in time. Unusually heavy snow began falling in Beijing this Wednesday. It's prompted authorities to suspend some trains and close schools. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani's defamation trial continues to unfold in Washington, D.C. The jury is resuming its deliberations. Giuliani arrived at the courthouse earlier this morning, but he has said he will not testify in the trial. The case stems from Giuliani's claim that two election workers in Georgia helped rig the 2020 election against Trump. The two election workers sued Giuliani for defamation. They are seeking $24 million in damages from him. The judge has already decided that Giuliani is liable for defamation. The jury only needs to decide how much he has to pay. And in Illinois, a sweeping restriction on common firearms is going to stay in place. The Supreme Court on Thursday denied an emergency request to halt the ban. The decision leaves in place a law called the Protect Illinois Communities Act. It makes it illegal for the general public to own semi-automatic rifles like the AR-15 and magazines holding more than 10 rounds. The Illinois governor signed it into law in January. It's one of the country's toughest restrictions on gun rights, and it's set to take effect in January 2024. The National Association for Gun Rights, along with a gun store owner, filed the emergency request to the high court in November. No justices dissented from the decision. The National Association for Gun Rights says they will keep fighting. The U.S. Naval Academy can consider race for applicants, a federal judge ruled yesterday. It's a blow to the same group that successfully challenged affirmative action before the Supreme Court. The judge, a George W. Bush appointee, acknowledged that the Supreme Court ruled affirmative action is unconstitutional in June. He added that their decision did exempt military academies. A lawyer for Students for Fair Admissions indicated the group may appeal 
The group is also suing the U.S. Military Academy, West Point. A federal judge in New York will hear arguments in that case on December 21st. President Biden's administration has defended the Military Academy's affirmative action policies. The adult son of Senator Kevin Kramer faces new charges for a car crash that killed a North Dakota sheriff's deputy. Ian Kramer initially faced a manslaughter charge for the deputy's death. Mercer County Sheriff's Deputy Paul Martin was killed on the highway on December 6th. Kramer hit speeds of 100 miles per hour and kept going even after a spite device flattened two tires. He then swerved and crashed head-on into Martin's squad car. A judge on Thursday approved upgrading the charge to homicide while fleeing a police officer. Drug charges include possession of meth, cocaine, marijuana, and drug paraphernalia. The homicide charge carries a longer sentence than manslaughter. Kramer now faces up to 20 years in prison and a possible $20,000 fine. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt is going after diversity, equity, and inclusion positions and programs in the state. Stitt calls it DEI, a waste of taxpayer money. The governor issued the executive order Wednesday. Public universities will be required to review and dissolve DEI positions and programs. All state agencies and institutions of higher education will have to report the costs of their programs. They'll also be required to cease funding any measure favoring a particular race, sex or ethnicity over another. Public educational institutions will be prohibited from using state funds, property or resources for DEI purposes. DEI-themed education or training also can't be mandated for employees. The order will not affect services that support veterans, low-income students, or students with unique abilities. Georgia authorities are asking for the public help in catching arsonists. A $200,000 reward is being offered for information leading to those responsible for setting fires to protest at police training center. Protesters have called the proposed Atlanta Public Safety Training Center Cop City. Atlanta police say more than 21 fires in four states have been set by a, quote, very small group. They say construction equipment, an Atlanta police precinct, and a youth center have all been recent targets of the group. Fortunately, no one has died from the fires, but police say the cost of the damage is more than $10 million. Several people have been arrested in connection to the crimes, but authorities are looking for more. The Gwinnett Fire Department says a November fire at a concrete company there destroyed 14 construction vehicles, and the group who claimed responsibility encouraged further acts of arson to support their efforts. Will the COP28 Climate Summit redefine the global economy? This year's president, Sultan Al-Jabbar, thinks so. For analysis of the event and its outcomes, we speak with Mark Morano, publisher of Climate Depot and author of Green Fraud. Mark has been at the event every year for decades, and that's not because he's a fan of what goes on there. Let's hear what he has to say about this year's United Nations Climate Change Conference. Mark Morano, thank you for joining us. You were just at the COP28 summit. Tell us about this and the goals and actions agreed upon by the countries there. Well, they've actually agreed this year. 190 nations have agreed to the beginning of the phase out of fossil fuels, which is really unrealistic, completely unscientific, and against all available data and basically common sense and reality. 80% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. And the UN, as some kind of virtue signal, got 190 nations to agree to the beginning of the phase out of this. 
And it just makes no sense because if they actually phased out fossil fuels, you wouldn't have a UN climate summit. We had multiple leaders, the UK Foreign Secretary, King Charles, John Kerry, all show up on private jets separately, separate private jets from the same country in England. And, and then, of course, other f officials came in. They, they literally are talking openly about shutting down coal and, and gas, oil. And somehow they believe that solar and wind is going to magically take over. And it and it just made no sense. I think it's a very dangerous um, meeting that they had in uh, Dubai. Now, COP28 President Sultan al-Jaber said the deal constituted a paradigm shift that has the potential to redefine our economies. What did he mean by that? Well, what it means, I call it a Sovietization or Soviet-style central planning. Because what's happening now is all these countries have to go home with these net zero emission goals. And in the case of like the Netherlands, you have court orders that then start shutting down farms where you can't be doing those fertilizers and you can't have animal agriculture uh, with methane because you're not gonna meet the net zero goals. We have to ban gas powered cars. So it means that all these countries have to go home and basically start deindustrializing and cutting back instead of just worried about development and prosperity and doing what's best for your citizens, you're now doing some goal that the United Nations is imposing upon you through intimidation. I mean, there's a lot of pressure to agree to this because you would have sanctions, effects on economic trade, all sorts of things that the UN will threaten. And the flip side of it is they want money from the wealthy nations to give to poor nations leaders in Africa, South America. And I've talked to South and African development activists. They, the UN climate Climate fund, which the U.S. just pledged $3 billion to, will give it to the leaders best able to keep its citizens locked in poverty, the ones who won't develop with fossil fuels and give people long life, low infant mortality, modern dentistry, and all the benefits we in the West enjoy. Instead, the U.N. will pay those leaders to keep everyone basically poor, and you might get a solar panel on your hut made of dung. That's what's so wrong with these conferences. And that's what they mean. They have to go home and every country has to come out, well, we have to meet this target, we have to do that. And there's a lot of nonsense and virtue signaling involved, but it's also yeah. a real issue going on here. Some countries have said this deal is the end of the fossil fuel era. How likely is that? It's just, it's completely unlikely. This is just, I don't know, it's like a utopianism takes over. They just believe they can just make a pronouncement and 80% of global energy is just gonna, oh, it's gone, we made a pledge. And they have goals of 2040, 2050, and you have to meet these. And there's going to be another meeting next year in Azerbaijan, another meeting after that in Brazil. It's just a way for the UN to get the planning and control over the global energy system. And it's it, actually what I simplify it to is it's the rationing of food, energy, and transportation. And you're going to have it's going to end up consolidating it. So big agribusiness, big corporations take over and you're going to have U.N. bureaucrats basically in charge, World Economic Forum. That's what's so frightening about this is they're not actually going to reduce emissions. You can look at the first U.N. climate summit was back in the 1990s and CO2 has done nothing but go up in the atmosphere. These summits have done nothing. They're just a lot of hot air, so to speak. All right. Mark Morano, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Recession risks are falling. Economists, analysts, and experts are predicting the U.S. could be headed for a soft landing. NTD Business host Don Ma speaks to a market strategist to find out outlook on the economy heading into next year. 
And now joining us is Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research. So Sam, uh, Powell the other day said that he's seeing significant progress uh, in terms of inflation. Um, I mean, from the market perspective, it seems like uh, no recession is in sight. So are we going to see the coveted uh, soft landing? I think uh, something pretty close to it. I think we're almost already there now. Uh, if we're, you know, the inflation rate, you know, if you account for the lagged housing data is already close to 2%. And uh, real growth is running around 2% or so right now. So that's pretty close to a soft landing already. And I think as we get into next year, uh, we'll be in that scenario, at least for a little while. Um, I think the greater risk is that we get, you know, a slowdown more than a, a re, uh, increase in inflation or growth. But, uh, but yeah, I think right now we're looking like uh, pretty close to a soft landing. But Sam, how can we have a soft landing when, if we look at historical record, every time the Fed, uh, when it has engaged in this sort of a hiking campaign, that we've always had a recession. So, I mean, what's different this time? Well, I think uh, there's two things. The, the big thing that's different this time is fiscal policy, um, that the uh, uh, the infrastructure and, and kind of uh, spending plans that, that came into effect in 2022 and then earlier this year uh, have really helped kind of offset a lot of what the Fed has done in terms of tightening policy. Fiscal policy has been relatively stimulative and helping uh, build productive capacity in the economy, which, which helps bring inflation down kind of over the longer term. Uh, the other thing is that it has actually happened before, just not often. It was the last time was about 30 years ago in 1995. There was a, an aggressive rate hike campaign in 1994, and then the Fed cut rates a few times in 95 as we got kind of a soft landing, and then the stock market did very well then as well. So I think some people may be actually looking back at that period as, as a comparison potentially. Uh, so it's, it's just written rare, but, uh, but it has happened before. So would you say if there's any change in fiscal policy that we could have a recession next year maybe? Yeah, I think the risk really is that fiscal policy becomes uh, much more restrictive, that the, the federal government starts to do uh, cost cutting, you know, kind of deficit reduction and really cuts back on spending and or tries to curtail some of the plans uh, that are in place now that are helping build infrastructure and manufacturing. Um, so that would be the risk is if fiscal policy becomes much tighter, while monetary policy is also relatively tight. Uh, those two things happening together are actually what has tended to cause recessions in the past. The fact that we've had one, you know, monetary policy being tight and fiscal policy being looser has helped balance things out. And so as long as that continues, we're probably okay. If fiscal policy gets tight also, that could be a problem. So final question, what's your base case for 2024 when it comes to recession? Uh, I think we probably can avoid a recession in 2024. Um, I think growth will be you know, decent, but not you know, spectacular. Um, and I think inflation will come back, back down. So, uh, so I'm thinking something closer to a soft landing, at least for the first half of the year. And then we'll have to see you know, what happens uh, politically uh, as we go into the second half of the year. But, uh, but I'm thinking you know, moderate growth uh, for 2024, no recession. All right. Sam Burns, Chief Strategist, Mill Street Research. Thank you very much. My pleasure. United Airlines flight attendants Thursday picketed outside LaGuardia Airport in New York. They hope to apply pressure to get a better deal during contract negotiations with the carrier. The airline employees are presented by the Association of Flight Attendants. Union members are expected to picket outside 19 airports nationwide. The AFA represents almost 50,000 flight attendants. 
The union noted in a press release that United Pilots reached a new contract in late September. The group cited the challenges of the pandemic, misbehaving passengers and operational disasters. An AFA official demanded that United, quote, stop playing games and added that union members are, quote, done being disrespected. Expect days of busy airports this holiday season. Airlines for America predicts 2.8 million passengers will fly each day. That would be a 16% increase in the number of passengers compared to last year. And the holiday period seems more spread out than usual. Delta says it has a seven-way tie for which day it thinks will be busiest. The FAA predicts a peak the Thursday before Christmas. American Airlines is forecasting that for Friday, December 22nd. The 19-day holiday travel period begins next Wednesday. General Motors is planning to lay off about 1,300 workers. That's according to notices the company has filed with Michigan regulators. The layoffs will take place at the Orion Assembly and Lansing Grand River Assembly plants next year. Those plants were used to manufacture Chevy Bolt electric vehicles. The company was planning to also use them to build Silverado EV and Sierra EV models. But GM announced in October it's delaying the start of production for those pickup trucks. And a powerful activist investor is escalating his battle over the future of Disney. Tree and Fund Management has been in a long-simmering feud with Disney CEO Bob Iger and the company's management to gain two seats on Disney's board. The investment firm said yesterday it would nominate its founder Nelson Peltz and former Disney CFO Jay Rasulo to sit on the board. This comes after Trien in November launched a new bid for seats on Disney's board, a move the entertainment giant turned down, reigning its battle from er, reigniting its battle from earlier this year. Disney over the past year has struggled with a surprising number of flops, declining viewership for movies and TV, and massive losses in its streaming business. Disney has pushed back in the past, but this time said it would review the proposal. Trian expects the next annual meeting to take place in spring of 2024. The FDA has confiscated more than $18 million worth of unauthorized e-cigarettes. It was part of a joint operation with Customs and Border Protection at a cargo examination site at LAX. According to the FDA, all of the 1.4 million confiscated units originated in China. They included commonly used brands such as Elf Bar and Funky Republic. The FDA says the items were intentionally mislabeled as toys or shoes and were also listed with incorrect values. The agency says the seized products will be destroyed. Three major retailers are suspending sales of water bead products marketed to young children. The announcement comes amid growing safety concerns. When the surgeon came out from the OR, he showed my husband and I a picture. And he said, this is what I pulled from your daughter's small intestine. Do you know what this is? And Jonathan and I recognized it immediately as the water bead material. Amazon, Walmart and Target will stop selling the colorful balls made of super absorbent polymers. They're often sold as toys, craft activity kits and sensory tools for children with developmental disabilities but swallowing them can pose serious health risks. An estimated 7,800 water bead-related injuries were treated in emergency rooms between 2016 and 2022. 
Last month, House lawmakers proposed banning all water beads marketed to kids nationwide. Coming up, Europe is tackling textile waste. Lawmakers vote for a new recycling strategy to address fast fashion. Why do they say it's needed and what will it look like in practice? And learn about the oldest form of textile manipulation from the master craftsman. We head to the heart of New York City's garment center to see a master pleader at work. We'll have the details soon when we return. About 6 million tons of textiles are discarded in the EU every year. That's over 20 pounds per person. Earlier this year, the European Parliament voted for a new strategy to recycle textiles. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on an initiative in Sweden, hoping to help fulfill the new requirements. Sorting textile waste is a complicated, time-intensive task. But an automated facility in southern Sweden called Siptex could have a solution. Regional recycling firm Sissov runs the operation. We have enormous amounts of very mixed uh, textile and we need to separate those um, according to fiber uh, in, in order for the recycling processes to work. Siptex can sort up to five tons of textile waste per hour. Lights and sensors identify the type of fiber. Compressed air then blows the fabric into the correct lane. We use near-infrared lights and visual spectroscopy. Um, and it's the same technique that you use on plastics. Uh, so the near-infrared light it illuminates the fabric, it bounces up, and this happens really quick. The plant can be programmed to sort three different types of textiles simultaneously. Cotton and polyester are pretty common. The machine can, can, uh, can tell us exactly what fiber composition. So what we have in the end uh, are bales uh, with a certain purity, for example, 95% um, cotton. Siptex can sort up to 27,000 tons of fabric a year. That's almost a third of Sweden's annual textile waste. If the recycling uh, industry is, is going to make it here and we're going to meet the goals that was set up by the European Union. So this is the first, this is the first facility of its kind, but it's definitely not the last. We will need a lot more automated sorting uh, capacity in Europe. IKEA and H&M are partners on the Siptex project, but critics say textile recycling is limited and it's only recycling low-quality products. And even worse, we make like an excuse to continue the huge volumes, the huge speed of the industry, which is the core problem, that we simply make too much, too cheap and too low quality. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, the Dodgers introduce their new $700 million man, Shohei Otani. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss his reasons for signing. And the aviation industry struggles to move toward net zero. But a 10-year-old Australian girl could become the poster child for the effort. More shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, quite a night last night in the NFL. Las Vegas scored a franchise record of 63 points just after being shut out four days ago. Um, what did you make of all that? I was stunned. 
And not just because I had the Chargers defense on my fantasy football team. This was the third most points scored in the NFL since the merger back in 1970. And they did it with an unheralded rookie quarterback and an interim head coach in Antonio Pierce. Now, if I was the owner, I would seriously be considering taking the interim tag off of Pierce. I mean, it's tough to motivate a team when they're nearly out of the playoffs as they are, but somehow he did. Now, I should mention on the other side of the field, the Chargers have just fired head coach Brandon Staley. Uh, this is according to a report by ESPN. This was just announced minutes ago. Now, Staley had already been under fire for not getting the most out of this team, but it does seem like a talented roster. Um, I'm sure that loss last night didn't help, but this is a good roster. I really think uh, other head coaches will be lining up for this job. Now, Dave, you know, Shohei Otani was finally introduced by the Dodgers after signing that record contract. Did he say his reasons for going with them? You know, he didn't say 100% why, but he did say when they told him that even though they had made the playoffs every year for the last decade, that they considered it a failure because they only had one World Series title, he said he knew then that they were all about winning, and that's exactly how he felt. Now, he never even saw the playoffs in his six seasons with the Angels. In fact, they never even had a winning record. Now, this was also his first time to address the media since, like, August, uh, so there were plenty of questions. He didn't say what other teams he had met with during free agency. That didn't surprise me. They were always tight-lipped about it. He also didn't say what kind of surgery he had on his arm that will keep him out all of next season. Now, regarding his contract, of course, it's very unique. 680 of the $700 million is going to be deferred. Apparently, that was offered by him and his agent. Um, and since it's being deferred interest-free, it actually does help the Dodgers out a bit. Dave, let's talk about sports memorabilia. Uh, you know, Lionel Messi jerseys were auctioned off for $8 million just this week. That's just sort of the record. You know, what makes them so valuable? You know, these are all from the World Cup run last year when he led Argentina to the World Cup title. Now, these fell just short of the record um, for a game-worn jersey, which was just over $10 million by Michael Jordan's last year. I'm actually surprised they came that, that close. I mean, these are only a year old. That Jordan jersey is from, like, the 1998 NBA Finals. And it's a tough find. Now, it should be noted that all these jerseys were actually from the first half of those games. Uh, apparently, he changed at halftime. Now, those games do include the semis and the finals, but I would guess if the ones he wore in the second half, especially of the finals, if they ever came to auction, I would think those could go for even more. All right. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dave, as always. The aviation industry is struggling to transition to net zero. But a 10-year-old Australian girl is flying sky high in an all-electric trainer plane. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the young pilot. Amy Spicer says she knew from an early age she wanted to fly, and she's still years away from high school. I was two and a half when I first said I wanted to. I was seven when I had a first flight, and I think I was eight in a glider, and I took lessons when I was about eight turning nine. The young aviator was in Perth, Western Australia for a flying lesson. She could be the world's youngest pilot of an all-electric aircraft. First time I actually took controls, when my instructor said, you want to take controls? I was absolutely petrified as they had taken me up for a first couple of flights beforehand, but I had absolutely no idea how. They said, do you want to try? And I said, sure. The aircraft is operated by Fly One. Western Australia has plans to become a hub for electric aviation. Three airports are already offering charging. Airline AVR is introducing electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft in 2025. 
Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Some mysterious radio bursts observed in space just became a little stranger. Scientists recently discovered a never-before-seen pattern in a newly spotted fast radio burst, or FRB. Astronomers don't quite understand what causes FRBs, but they say a study published Wednesday in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronom Astronomical Society provides clues that could identify the phenomenon's source. The fast radio bursts are bright, millisecond-long flashes of radio waves and one of the most enduring mysteries of the cosmos. The first FRB was discovered in 2007. Since then, hundreds have been detected coming from distant points across the universe. Former First Lady Melania Trump made a rare public appearance today. She spoke at the National Archives annual naturalization ceremony celebrating 25 new U.S. citizens. Though you come from 25 different countries, your dreams and inspirations intertwine with those who came before you since 1776 and together shaped the future of this extraordinary country. You are American. Be a beacon of inspiration for your children and those who follow in your footsteps. May your journey continue to be filled with endless possibilities, and may your contributions enrich the fabrics of this great nation. The former First Lady became a U.S. citizen in 2006. She emphasized the importance of active participation in democracy and contributing to society as a good citizen. Her speech took place at the National Archives in Washington, the same agency that accused former President Trump of taking classified documents with him when leaving the office. And today is National Cupcake Day. December 15th is a day we celebrate a uniquely American confection, the cupcake. The first recipe appeared in a book called American Cookery back in 1796. Some called them patty cakes or one, two, three, four cakes at first. That's because the recipe called for one cup of butter and milk, two cups of sugar, three cups of flour, and four eggs. Celebrate the day by baking your own and posting pictures to social media with the hashtag National Cupcake Day. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories on Monday. Thank you.